Hi there, this is Tune Into Gaming, a new gaming podcast. I'm North Kozar. And I'm Quactical. So You might be... Oh, go ahead. You might be wondering what this podcast is about. <laughs> so this podcast is about uh, mostly gaming in general. We wanted to make something that would allow us to discuss various things in gaming that we're enjoying or whether it's upcoming games, nostalgic games and things like that. Uh, but we also wanted to be able to have a platform to talk about music, whether that's music and video games, performance music or production and composition. Both of us enjoy creating and listening to music, but um, we also both enjoy and love playing games. So right. Tune Into Gaming is sort of the, I guess, brainchild, if that's the <laughs> appropriate term to use here. Uh, it's the brainchild of that idea. So this is just the first of hopefully many Tune Into Gaming podcasts. Um, but today, uh, what are we going to talk about? Well, um, our main topic is going to be about overhyping um, and just game releases and how content gets marketed and how the gaming community as a whole kind of assesses that content and and thinks about games that are about to come out in the future. Um, we'll later move on into a little bit of a nostalgia trip with some older games that we're still enjoying and still wanting to play. Um, and then we'll have a fun segment. But first, we're going to start off talking about some upcoming games that we're excited about. Uh, starting with Civ Six, actually. Um, yeah. The Civilization series is a series that I've enjoyed for my whole life. I don't even remember when I first started playing Civilization. I must have been about you know nine or ten. Uh, I've always loved strategy games in general. And I'm definitely very excited for this next iteration of this franchise, um, specifically because of the changes they've made to how the cities work. Uh, now, if you're not familiar with Civilization, um, it's a strategy game where you control um, a small nation. You start off with one city, um, and you can build settlers to go and build other cities. Now, the way it works is that you have a zone of influence around that city, which controls many tiles. Um, but in previous Civilization games, all of the buildings were stacked on the city center. So you could build as many buildings as you want, and there wasn't really a limit. So now what they're doing instead you have to build basically these encampments on the tiles which then you can build buildings on top of and so this is actually going to change the game quite a bit and mean that cities actually have much more of a physical presence on the landscape and you can see your civilization kind of change and evolve your surroundings as you progress through the ages and so it's i'm really excited about this that sounds pretty cool i for me strategy games aren't my forte. I, I definitely struggle with them a little bit, and so I haven't been as involved with uh, the Civilization games, but I know that they're a pretty popular one, especially as far as strategy games go. And so with with the city building, is it like in before Civ Six, you kind of just could stack up a city and make it like this one big glob of city, and now you're saying you have to kind of like expand outward and it like grows and changes as the timeline progresses? Yeah, exactly. Um, and so there's going to be a lot more... The environment that you settle your city in is going to be a lot more impactful on how the city grows and and how large it can grow. I mean, it always had an influence, but it's definitely going to feel a lot more immersive in that sense, in my opinion. Um, and I think that's something that I definitely appreciate about games. And strategy games specifically is feeling like, you know, you have an organic experience, right? That when you play the game you're not just like running through the same like best practice strategy over and over again that that your gameplay experience 
changes and is defined by what happens to you along your journey. Um, and I think that changes like this will really move towards that kind of feeling and that kind of theme in the game. So it's it's less like uh, trying to min-max something or meta the game to death. You're kind of, the the end point is less important. It's more about how you get to the end point. So like if you, <laughs> if you want to nuke all the other civilizations, that's like your end goal. But what makes it more interesting and engaging is the strategy that takes place trying to get to that point. Right, all the twists and turns along the way, you know, the 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 small decisions that you make because something happened that you didn't expect, you know, maybe an ally did something different, or, you know, maybe you, you found a resource that you weren't expecting to find. Um, and I think those, in a lot of senses, are some of the most compelling and rewarding experiences in games, is when you have to make those on-the-fly decisions, and, and things do change, and you don't expect what's what comes and what happens. Yeah, that that's always more fun too, especially and if you're so your allies and stuff are just AI, like it's the bots, isn't it? Or can you play with other people? Uh, yeah, there's multiplayer as well. Okay, well that's cool. I think that anytime you have games that allow for multiplayer, especially I would imagine strategy games that they're they're a lot longer. It's not like you sit down for a ten minute first person shooter game or Call of Duty right. or whatever. Um, that there's a lot of those kind of alliance building and breaking that happens that makes that a lot of fun. And I guess, again, like I haven't, I haven't played a whole lot of strategy games, but if the, if playing with the bots kind of does that too, there's like that dynamism where you get betrayed or, you know, there's Mm -hmm. random stuff that doesn't necessarily feel random, but feels plausible. Like, I think that when you have uh, some of that, randomly generated things so you know oh your ally decides to betray you well if there was a reason like you had this resource that they needed then that's kind of cool but if it's just like oh Mm -hmm. the computer rolled a six so now they're going to betray you like (laughs) well uh, i think what they've done for this iteration of the game is they've given some of the ai leaders hidden agendas so that they'll they'll work with you on one level you know maybe they'll trade with you a little bit or do some diplomacy but they will have a hidden agenda or a hidden set of goals or objectives that they don't reveal to you that they will also make decisions based upon. Oh, that's cool. Um, so yeah, I'm hoping that that will definitely make things interesting. Yeah. So you, you you can kind of like try and discover what their true motives are. Being like, oh, if they're allying me now, you know. Yeah. Huh. Um, so I'm definitely hoping that adds some, some spice and variety to the game. Is there anything upcoming that you're excited about? So... Yeah, I'm actually kind of looking forward to Watch Dogs 2. Oh, really? Um, yeah, I, you know, the first Watch Dogs game was not, what was that? It was out in like 2014 or something. It, it wasn't the most well-received. There definitely were some bugs and some issues and whatnot. But I don't know. I, I love the concept of Watch Dogs. Like, I love, yeah. you know, for me, I, I love open world exploring gameplay and so that that fits into it. But just the concept was very different. It's not, you know, you're some crime lord syndicate, whatever, going around running gunning. It's like kind of trying to modernize some of those aspects. And so you're like this hacker and you're working with a group, you know, to try and accomplish whatever maybe crime based. I, you know, I'm not super sure on the specifics of the story, but it just how it incorporates the hacking mechanics seemed really cool in Watch Dogs 1. And it just didn't play out very well. And the fact that they're doing a Watch Dogs 2, despite some of the issues that they had in the first one, I think like that's mm-hmm. sort of what makes it exciting for me. Because um, so, you know they're going to have to change the formula in some way right. to make it better. So like 
you know, maybe they, they do have an idea of how they can fix it and make it actually a really great game. Yeah, and that's it seems like it could really go as one of those things where they, they learned from their mistakes in the first mm-hmm. one. They're like, okay, well, this is why, you know, it wasn't as well received because of the hacking was difficult or it was kind of like, it right. it, it broke the flow of gameplay. But um, I think that, you know, it, it's it's neat that they're still like sticking with it and going through with something else. So it, if you don't know what Watch Dogs is, it's an action adventure game that has a pretty decent amount of stealth uh, mechanics in it. It's third person and it's in an open world. I'm I'm pretty sure it's set in San Francisco or like some future version of San Francisco or whatever. Uh, and uh, I believe in Watch Dogs 2 also the world is larger, of course, because oh. I always have to have the like okay. game environment be larger. <clears throat> um, and just like any other open world, you know, I guess now they're what, quote unquote, GTA styled games or whatnot. There's... <laughs> Many different ways to go about the city, but uh, what's interesting about it is the again the hacking mechanics. So yeah, you can use different methods to approach like uh, the missions, where you don't always necessarily have to go and just shoot and run and gun. There's uh, environmental hazards as well that you can kind of control or hack, um, such as if you're driving and you're being chased, you can hack into the police thing and put up like a roadblock, whatever those roadblock things are that come up out of the ground and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know all of the new like hacking mechanic-y things that they are going to have in Watch Dogs 2. I think they're doing more stuff with like uh, mini UAVs or like drones and things as well. Um, but something that is also really cool about Watch Dogs or at least Watch Dogs 2 is that they're taking another approach at the multiplayer, but it also has a co-op multiplayer mode. Oh, and so really? uh, you can explore the world and interact with people and do missions together. Um, but that sounds it, really exciting. It, what's neat about it is uh, I don't know how the co-op multiplayer mode differs from the like invasion mode, but uh, uh, when you're playing the game at any point in time uh, that you can you can like invade other players' worlds if you're playing online. So um, like Dark Souls, d- almost <laughs> <laughs> kind of yeah. So and this was in the first game too that a player can join another player's single player session, and they basically are like you know put viruses into their um, their hacking system. I don't remember what it's called, but the the player then has to like escape after the virus is planted while the person whose game was invaded has to find and kill them. So it's a little different. It's kind of like someone's trying to mess up your world and you're like, uh, excuse me, how about not? But um, something new that they're adding in Watch Dogs 2 is it's called the Bounty Hunter mode. Or I think it's, yeah, it's Bounty mm-hmm. Hunter. So if a player is playing online and they create too much chaos in their world, it kind of like automatically goes into effect where police oh. start going after them. And then alongside with anywhere, I think it's from one to three players, will join into their game and those three players i don't know that they're necessarily working together i don't think that they're working against each other but their aim is to get the kill the player who has the bounty on them and they get experience points with that okay so that's um, interesting yeah it's it's interesting to me because i love that sort of like seamless drop in drop out Mm -hmm. style of gameplay with the single player aspect um it it's a neat concept to me and i hope that it works a little bit better than the online invasions just alone were in Watch Dogs 1. Yeah, definitely. Um, but I, you know, it's it's hard to say. And I think that was the other thing, too, 
that was kind of interesting because with the first Watch Dogs game, like it was, it was a really big deal and it was really hyped up. Like mm-hmm. this is this is a new approach. You know, it's a new approach on the same old formula of the GTA open world type of game. Um, but when it was actually released, it just wasn't very well polished and you know, you can kind of go wherever you want talking about Ubisoft and the problems they've had with releasing unpolished games. But that was kind of the bigger part of the letdown was there was so much hype around it. And then it, it didn't deliver, which, you know, works well. So one of the things we wanted to talk about was dealing with that overhype and like what kind of happens when a game is to be released or, you know, is being premiered at E3 or whatever. And you want to hype up the game. You want to be like, this is going to be the coolest Mm -hmm. game ever because of these reasons. We've got these cool features, but you know, how do you handle overhyping it? Like you're, you're setting the bar so high that when it comes out, you know, it, people are kind of let down. Like, I don't know. I'm not sure Mm -hmm. how you would really be able to deal with that thinking in the mindset of a developer if you were, you know. Right. Yeah. And I think some of it has to do with just, the evolution of gaming over time, you know, we're kind of in an era where there haven't been as many like huge paradigm shifts in terms of some of the game design, except for the move to more and more of a multiplayer focus. But, you know, when you're talking about like a single player experience, the paradigm shifts really haven't been there for the past, you know, five years or so, you know, we had like maybe a decade or so ago, a large a large amount of like new, very interesting, like very different games come out with like these kind of open world style games, like Just Cause, and you know, then a little bit later on, you know, we're talking about Watch Dogs and that kind of stuff, and, and the GTA style games. But nowadays, it seems like more than anything, they're just being made bigger. There's more content, and and the worlds are larger, <laughs> but the fundamental way in which the players interact with the world it maybe hasn't changed quite as much as yeah. the Scott the size and the scale and the scope of the game has. Um, and so I think that's something that maybe developers are struggling with in terms of how to market their games because to a certain extent, people have already seen a lot of these ideas before. There's just more of it. So what do they really have to generate an, an organic level of hype and excitement? And I think that kind of plays into like what what ends up happening with overhyping and potentially even false advertising like we see with No Man's Sky and that kind of stuff. Yeah, so when you have when you have a system like a gameplay system like a GTA style game like Watch Dogs 2 or whatever mm-hmm. it's it, it it isn't necessarily new you know you can't you can't say oh this is completely new groundbreaking gameplay so you have to hype up the aspects that make your game unique because otherwise you know it's it's not a whole like okay well why don't I just go buy GTA 5 because that's a huge game that's super you know polished at this point you know what what mm-hmm. makes me want to buy Watch Dogs 2 oh well there's this hacking mechanic and there's this like you know, drop and drop out multiplayer competitive aspect and trying to sell those points without making them seem like, you know, their, their core game mechanics. I think that that sometimes can be a, a bit of um, like misdirection where there's yeah. so much attention paid to these things like the, the multiplayer in Watch Dogs 2. Well, you know, you don't know how much exactly that's going to factor into you playing the game in a single player session. Mm-hmm. And if you're playing offline, like, you don't have access to that online uh, multiplayer stuff. So yeah. At, so at basically what, what we're seeing is that there's like a large incentive for the developer and the publisher in a lot of cases to focus so much of their attention and resources on those very minor features which differentiate their game as opposed to maybe even the core gameplay elements like we're seeing with these games that 
aren't maybe quite as polished because they can they can still sell them with their unique gimmick almost in some cases yeah so i mean you know what we, let's not beat around the bush let's get into the nitty-gritty you know no man's sky yeah like that's <laughs> that's that's been the huge kind of letdown of oh, what i would say this year i i was hyped i was pumped 150,000 uh, yeah, percent it it just it looked great everything i heard about it was so great um but you know, there there was all of this talk also about like multiplayer and things like that. And it was interesting because I actually heard about the multiplayer discussion. I, I didn't read it anywhere. I heard about it on, um, uh, I think it was on uh, Crash Course Gaming that it, it was it was lumped into an MMO category. And I was like, wait, it's a single oh, player wow. game. <laughs> That's and, not true at all. And I was really, I was really confused about that, but I looked into it and, it, you know, there were these like random sprinkles of multiplayer promises or like, you know, mm-hmm. maybe promises is the wrong word, but it's like thing- suggestions that there would be that um, some some sort of content there, yeah, yeah, some sort of interactivity between other players, and I think that it's very possible that could have been occluded or like confused with being able to name planets and systems, like as you discover them. Yeah. But I think by and large, the biggest you know letdown with uh, No Man's Sky was that it it didn't really have gameplay. Like, right. you know, the, the content, like, oh man, the procedural generation, I, I personally, I think that's really cool. And I think that all of the effort that went into that is something that's really great. And I think that's mm-hmm. what makes the game unique in that regard. But yeah. And that's what was so exciting about hearing it. You know, they talk about creating the system of a procedurally generated universe, you know, and we've seen some of that before, you know, I think back to games like Spore, which in a lot of ways seem to be much more fully featured than No Man's Sky really ever could be. <laughs> but it's interesting that, like, you know, they set up this framework that they could have done a lot with in terms of making the world interactive and making the world dynamic. You know, I think that's what we're seeing. You know, it, you don't have to create a procedurally generated universe that has a ton of, like, every single detail is perfect and all that kind of stuff. You just need to make it so that the player can really interact with that universe in a way that's dynamic and, and like, gives them that, that satisfaction of playing the game. And that's something that like No Man's Sky doesn't really have in the same way. And to, to be fair, I think that that's something that's kind of hard to do in a game, in a, in a large procedurally generated game, especially that's right. in space, where like you're this lone person going out and exploring the galaxy. It's going to be kind of hard to, you know, make it feel like you're having an impact on the game world, which is space, you know, so there's no real right. bounds to it. But like, being able to have, you know, a home planet that you can influence or help develop or, you know, any sort of gameplay feature, I think that gives players a sense of investment into something mm-hmm. is really great. Like, you know, having having a weapon that you can upgrade or a ship that you can upgrade, um, just it, it, it gives a lot of tie to something that doesn't necessarily have to take place in the game world. Because, you know, when you, like I said, when you have a game that is as big on scale as No Man's Sky, it's going to be hard to give that sense of um, just like the, give the sense that the player is actually having an impact on the entire world. But finding a way that like, you know, even if it was something like a some sort of trading system or anything, I guess it, it feels like that No Man's Sky, part of what happened with the hyping was it was marketed as an exploration game with like combat and um, 
this this sense of discovery. And the letdown mm-hmm. that kind of came with that was there's not really a whole lot of combat. You know, the the flight mechanics are what in in my experience bizarre. It feels very much like you're not flying on rails, but like you can't you can't really do fun flying. Like I I would want to be able to fly around the ground like in between canyons and stuff and explore the landscape of the planets but like oh wow you can't even do any of that you can't See, crash. I haven't played it yet <laughs> you can't crash like the oh. game will not let you drive your ship straight into the ground and That's yeah disconcerting it, it's it, in and i i'm not the first one to say this i've, I've heard it mentioned elsewhere but it, it the, the thing that with no man's sky was it has a lot of um it, it had a lot of promise and it boasted a lot of content but it kind of feels like a tech demo for the procedural generation it doesn't feel like a game there's not much playing you go to a planet you mine materials to get more fuel to maybe you know sell or whatever and then you go to the next planet and it's kind of a rinse repeat and the problem with the planets also is that they're so large that you you don't really ever explore a lot of them and there's no reason to because the materials just, that you need just are just about the resources yeah yeah you're like oh here's this note of resources let me you know shoot my mining thing let me mine it and then i'm good to go i can fly away there's no incentive to explore the planet it you know um it, with my limited experience with the game there's not really like biomes on the planets it's sort of like here's this planet and this is the landscape and you know i don't know that you'd see anything new flying around the whole planet like to do a full loop of the planet could take a long time but why why bother when you've basically seen everything you need to see already yeah i mean i think really just this leads me to where i'm at with the gaming industry at this point and and that's that anything that comes out before a game's release i take with a massive 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 grain of salt um <laughs> because you just have to know that every one of these developers and especially the publisher maybe maybe the developer in a lot of cases, they do set out to make a great, fantastic game for the players. But definitely the publisher has an incentive to oversell and underdeliver. Um, yeah. That's kind of always going to be the case, especially with how pre-ordering goes. You know, you'll see large sections of the gaming community in some senses speaking out against pre-ordering or, you know, saying, you know, we're not going to pre-order anymore because of these issues, because of games coming out that don't have the features that that, that were promised or just really, you know... They, they sold something that, that is there kind of in name only, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's kind of what No Man's Sky is. I mean, w- with the issues with the multiplayer promises aside, because that clearly wasn't the case. But, you know, th- they promised this expansiveness, and we got literally a very expansive world, but we didn't get an expansive game. And I think that, yeah. like, in the advertising, those two... it it's spoken about in a very misleading way so that so that developers or or the publishers the advertisers can talk about the expansiveness of the world or or a feature without actually talking about the game and the gameplay and the experience itself yeah and i i think that that's that's something that was really done a lot in 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 a lot of you know kind of i guess misdirected ways they were able to mm-hmm. discuss and say like there's all this content everything's going to be generated and it's all going to be unique and you're like wow this is so cool i can't wait to interact with everything well there's not much interaction like and that's that's sort of one of the sticking points i feel like and you know it's not it's not to say that the developers of no man's sky like it's not that they they didn't do their best in making the game you know i mm-hmm. i in, in talking about this it's 
it's it's never to say like well they just need to do better and make better games and add more content no it's not that's not that's not what the discussion is about the discussion is about how how what they're making is interpreted because i feel like if no man's sky wasn't overhyped and sort of you know if if the if the audience and you know prospective players didn't feel misdirected and misguided about what it was going to be it could have been received in a totally different light and been much more of an enjoyable experience i think for me thinking about it there's a couple points like one it doesn't feel like it's worth $60 it it yeah. doesn't feel like there's enough content or gameplay there to warrant a $60 game 20 maybe $30 for you know an indie game of that scope i think that that's i think that's totally fair like it, comparing you, you have these space games comparing no man's sky to elite dangerous at least there's much more content and gameplay in elite dangerous and the base game is $30 they have a different expansion model mm-hmm. but to play the game it's $30 and i i would argue that there's more gameplay there than in no man's sky but so i think that the the price point was something that sort of you know was hit wrong yeah. with people once they discovered there wasn't a whole lot of content there but just also thinking about like you know it would it's fun to explore i love exploring generated places and things but when when you're when you're promised you know so much more interaction so much more combat so much more gameplay that it's it's hard like i i want to be able to step back from it and be like okay well if i didn't hear all this hype if i wasn't so like excited and ready to get it and just play and be blown away you know would i have still bought it if it was just you know hey we've got this game that does tons of procedural generation and you can explore and like visit all of it you know more right. of like a, a museum type of thing like honestly if you strip away the whole mining aspect of the game like that's all it is yeah you don't need it right the game could still be something great without that it just it's how it's marketed and i think that like you said it's it's not always in the hands of the developers to kind of make that call yeah and i think that what you're also speaking to is that there's somewhat of a symbiotic relationship between the community and the developer or the publisher and the advertiser in this case you know because people were really excited about this kind of idea there's a reason it got so much attention right it's not like some developer puts out an ad for a game that nobody wants and it gets overhyped because they promise a bunch of things like it's it's that people want that kind of game like and the people want really want the kind of things that 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 they're trying to make um and so i think that's the community ends up being really susceptible to these kinds of things for that reason yeah and i i feel that hello games the developers in no man's sky i think that at least you know i i wasn't super involved following along with their development process but it seemed like they were you know fairly fairly open and interactive with the community through their like twitter and facebook pages all along Mm -hmm. the way um you know there was the whole debacle about people being upset that the game was delayed uh however many months it was but like delays are something that i don't i don't personally get upset about i would rather a game be delayed and have it come out better you know i don't know if that's Mm -hmm. necessarily the case here but um they like they seemed really open and connected with their community around the development of the game and all of that. So it's, it, it, it might even make it feel a little more personal, you know, because there was already that connection there and they're like, okay, but you know, we've been following along. You promised, you promised this, you promised that. Where's all my, where's all my gameplay? Where's all my content? You know, it, it feels like a personal attack. Like the wool was pulled over the gamer's eyes in a way, just because they were 
seemingly so open about it early on. Yeah. They sunk so much more into developing that relationship. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, and like I said, there's a reason that I was jaded about it because I've seen that happen before. Um, you know, because a lot of times that that interaction with the community can somewhat either be a facade or it can be kind of both at the same time. They can be sincere about wanting to connect with the community and tell them about the upcoming game and underdeliver at the same time. Like, yeah. that also just does happen. And I think it's it's really hard to like point the finger at any one group in particular in general. I think in this case, definitely there's, I think Hello Games has had definitely had a serious part to play in in it. I think, you know, it sounds like Sony did as well from what I can tell um, yeah. from the media that I'm seeing. Um, but it really is interesting. It kind of segueing a little bit. It makes me think of just games in general. I mean, when they come out, I was actually thinking a little bit about Mass Effect 3. Um, and kind of the the disappointment that was had about the ending upon its initial release. Um, now, yeah. if you're not familiar with the series, uh, Mass Effect is a space um, action adventure RPG game. Um, started off more of as an RPG, but moved more into shooter and action game in the uh, third iteration and second iteration as well. But it's a trilogy, um, and in the last game, um, upon its release, a large portion of the community was pretty upset by the ending. Um, and I don't want to spoil it, but... Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but but just they were not happy with it. It really didn't live up to the expectations of a lot of people. Um, and I've been thinking about this for a while because Mass Effect has been one of my favorite series of games. Oh, yeah. Um, it's, it's, for many, it, many years. Me too. Um, but I think, to some extent, it sort of had to happen this way. And I think we've talked about this a bit before. But I think when you get a series like that, when people are so invested in it, um, or, you know, they want something out of it so badly. And, you know, we see this kind of with how No Man's Sky was, was advertised, right? People wanted it so badly. You know, when, when the, the product comes out, especially when you're, like, ending a trilogy that, like, people are so invested in, I feel like to a certain extent, you're always going to have people be disappointed in it, right? Like, it's ending. There's <laughs> yeah, always going to be sadness. And I think people, in some ways, will find almost anything to point the finger at. And that's not to say that there wasn't issues with the ending and that it, maybe it was different from what people expected. But in, but in some ways, like, you have thousands of people, you know, millions of people, all coming in with different expectations. No matter what they would have made, some percentage of the people would have been pissed off and disappointed because it wasn't what they imagined Mass Effect to end like, right? Yeah. And I think we see this with lots of communities and lots of different kinds of games. Um, I don't know. It was just something that I was thinking about when it comes to this overhyping issue that it really is kind of a symbiotic relationship between the community and the developers and the publishers, in my opinion. No, yeah, definitely. And I think that as, you know, as the audience, as the consumers, as the gamers, we have a bit of a responsibility there too. Like if, if we get overhyped, then we, we kind of also have to keep ourselves in check. Like, I mean, you know, you said you were sort of jaded toward No Man's Sky because you, you know, you've, you've been there with the overhyping <laughs> yeah. of game releases and whatnot, but like it, you kind of have to check yourself a little bit. Like, you know, you can't, you can't expect, Oh, no man's sky is going to like be the best thing in the entire world. Like it, it might sound bad, but I feel like you, you kind of need to set your expectations a little bit low, like get excited, get pumped about it. Yeah. But you know, don't, don't expect it to just completely blow your world away because if it doesn't, then it's going to suck and you're probably not going to enjoy the game as much. But if you go into it excited to play a game that you've been looking forward to, but without, like, I guess, too many preconceived notions. And maybe that's 
part of the issue with an open yeah. communication with the community about the development cycle. Like, you have a game that is closed off. You don't know anything about it until here's here's a rough outline of the plot. You know, you're sort of going fresh in that sense, right? If that would yeah. if that would have something completely different, like you still have to be able to hype it in some way to sell it, but to kind of remove that open connection might help that. And and that that sucks actually because I I, I love that connection. I love that mm-hmm. sense of feeling a part of you know the the development of a game or just a part of a community rallying around a game that they're excited for or that they love like and i think that was something that really was a struggle for the mass effect community when mass effect 3 came out and there was kind of that letdown but again like you have two games built up of content that and as well so in between mass effect 1 2 and 3 like decisions you made and choices carry over into each game so it's not like part one part two part three it's a mass effect one through three is the story like it's one game spread across you know three installations essentially so yeah you're you're there's gonna be let down like you've been with these characters with this story for such a long time so many years that it's gonna suck when it ends but at the same time like i think it's it's hard to satisfy everyone and in regards to mass effect like i i also was kind of disappointed by how it all went down but mm-hmm. you know at least in that regard i kind of have to offer up creative direction and freedom to the developers it's their story they're allowed to craft and right. tell it how they want to and it's very different having issues with the story compared to like the technological just existence of the game in the first place yeah so it's it, it's a it's a little different but i think that the hype in general like the hype or maybe I guess lack of excitement towards something ending. You know, I I think that the biggest thing that causes issues is um, just preconceived notions and expecting games to deliver in a way that you know they they don't or they might not even be yeah. able to. But especially when they're promising like a huge paradigm shift, because that's that's the way I think about it, and that's I think the way you have to think about it when you're looking at game advertising. Let's say No Man's Sky, right? If No Man's Sky had come out as the game that sort of everyone was expecting it to be, it would have been a massive paradigm shift in open world games and how open world games were developed and advertised and played, right? Like yeah. because of what everyone was expecting it to be. You can't you can't know that someone is going to promise that, that someone is going to deliver that, excuse me. Even the person trying to deliver that can't know whether they're going to deliver that or not. Like when you're when you're talking about changing like the fundamental nature of how like the gaming industry or let's say any art form or any any other industry, right, where you're producing a creative product like that, when you promise a paradigm shift, that's something that's always impossible to deliver because you're saying let's just change the whole structure of it. Well, you don't know if it's going to turn out good or not. Right. Like that's kind of the nature of experimental work and experimental games, and and that's why we need the indie gaming side of things as well but it just for me that's not something you can get so overhyped about you can be excited but you always have to have your expectations be tempered by the reality of knowing where the gaming industry is right now you know there aren't games coming out like no man's sky was saying it was gonna be yeah those games don't exist and maybe they won't exist in 2016 maybe they won't exist until 2020 we don't know we don't know until the first one comes out and we won't really and I don't think we can really ever trust anyone who says they can deliver that until it already exists and is available for us to play, honestly. Yeah. It's it's difficult to kind of be able to predict 
the outcome of things. And when you're working on something, like, uh, granted, I've not developed a game, but when you're working on something, you kind of have your own pair of rose-colored glasses you're viewing it all through. So, mm-hmm. like, you know, there there's a different attachment to the content. Or if, you know, there's the possibility, like, in the publisher's case, like, I, you know, we're going to make money off of this. This is the best thing since sliced bread. <laughs> like, right. But to to find some sort of middle ground, like I don't know, is it is it possible? Do you think that it's something that can be done with trying to hype releases and get people excited for selling them from a business standpoint, but not going so far as to create this huge letdown if and when the content doesn't deliver on every single point? I don't know. I think the system needs different incentives for that to be the case, because uh, right now. You know, even if if you start off from a position of selling only what you know the game is capable of delivering, well, at that position you're going to be behind everyone else who is overhyping. Their game. Yeah, right. And and who's to say that the community is going to believe you just because you can say, oh, well, I'm telling the truth about my game? They're you know, they're just as likely to disbelieve you as anyone else. So, in that sense, it's it's kind of a zero sum game because everyone has an incentive to overhype, and you get kind of this snowball escalation effect going on. So then how do we, let's, let's frame this in a, a different genre of gaming. Let's look at the yearly installation of like Call of Duty. How much, how much hype goes into those? You know, I, I think that you, you look, sports games sort of fall outside of the hype category because they, they fit the yearly installation model with the seasons of the games like that. Yeah. That's sort of already established, but you know, call of duty doesn't have any tie to anything. And yet we, we get one every year and it, you know, people will argue that they're different, but by and large, the gameplay is the same, you know, values are changed. Maps are different. Guns are different and whatnot. These are different. Yeah. Yeah. But like what, what goes into hyping those? Is it just because they have this established, you know, connection already that like, Call of Duty is this competitive shooter game that can come out every year and still like get people to buy it. Is it just because it already has that running repertoire with everyone that plays Call of Duty consistently? I They're like, oh, so. I've got to get the new one, you know, kind of like, oh, I got to get the new iPhone, I got to get the new whatever. Is it just new is always better syndrome? I mean, clearly that, that works. Clearly <laughs> yeah. that works. Like people buy those things those things are sold in massive quantities yeah. right i think for call of duty as well because of the way the multiplayer works because the whole community shifts games every year or like uh, probably the majority of the community like you don't really have a choice it's the same with the parallel for like the the EA sports games for example the yearly installations there if you want to play those in a multiplayer sense like having fifa 13 doesn't do you any good <laughs> yeah. so i think you get some of that element as well which sucks for the community like you know, because then you're forced to buy a $60 game plus map packs. Like, how many map packs do each of these games have? How much money are you spending on a yearly basis? I, I don't even know. I've lost count at this point. <laughs> like, if you were to spend that same amount of money, you know, people talk about WoW being extremely expensive back in the day. But compare the cost. Like, is it really that much more when you're talking about comparing WoW, this massive, like, open-world RPG game, to Call of Duty, where you're paying probably, like, at least $80, $100 a year as far as, like, DLC plus a yearly installation of the game? Eh. Maybe it's maybe it's not that much more. Yeah, I think it, I think that also just it has to do with like how you look at it in terms of spending money. Like for some people, it's easier to be like, oh, I'll drop sixty dollars right now and then pay forty dollars later for the map packs, and then that's mm-hmm. all I have to spend. Whereas if it's a monthly fifteen dollars subscription and then every so often thirty sixty dollars expansion, 
like that's like consistently sort of chipping away at something like you know it it, it yeah. sort of depends on how you view spending i think at that point as to which you feel is an appropriate framework but again you know it, it's it's this it's this battle that kind of sucks between the development of the games the development of the content and that creative wonderfulness that can happen and then the business you know just pushing sales side of things as well and i it's it's different for AAA games from indie games for sure right. but i feel like indie games are kind of being forced to go that route it's almost like you have double a games now that are indie studios like pairing with big publishers like sony mm-hmm. trying to bridge this gap to get more sales you know because indie games are they kind of are that nice framework that like let's try something new let's try something different not develop it for two years but you know make it so that it's it's new you know it might be kind of bare bones but you know i don't know i think that it's 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 a it's a rough game that developers often kind of get stuck in the middle of wanting to be creative, push new territory, but also being aware that like, hey, this needs to sell. And especially yeah. if there's like the publishing pressure as well. Because at the end of the day, it takes a business and it takes finances and it takes investment to develop a video game. Um, and it really doesn't matter for the most part what scale or scope of video game you're talking about. That's just kind of true across the board. So even for some of these smaller indie, indie studios that we're talking about, unless you're literally just developing the game by yourself you know, in your right. room, which is what I'm doing. But <laughs> unless you're literally just doing that, it takes a business and it takes being aware of your bottom line and it takes being aware of, you know, how much you think your game is going to sell and and it, and you have to be aware of all those things. And, and what that gets you is it gets you that set of incentives that I was talking about, you know, to, to push things and to hype things. You know, I think when we have this kind of, almost like a fake indie sector in that sense right now. Like you have like the real indie sector, which is, you know, people just kind of making games on their own. And that sort of like trickles up through, through the levels of the gaming industry, right? Then you have, like you were talking about, like these, almost these double a games where, you know, these larger publishers have realized that the community likes a lot of things about indie games. So they want to try and capture that and make money off of it. So they partner with the indie studios, but in the process of doing so, it probably eliminates a lot of what's good about the like the structure of that studio in the first place potentially you know well let's let's look at this real quick thinking about mass effect 1 like you 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 said as well mass effect 1 is definitely much more of an rpg game there's right. a lot more levels and skills and things that add numbers to stuff it's much less of a shooter gameplay and that mm-hmm. was released uh what was like was that 8 2007 maybe yeah um, and that was Bioware. And then when Bioware became, well, not became, but now they're connected with EA. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't, two and three. Yeah, I don't remember exactly how all that went down. But it, it, the, the gameplay shifted like significantly. And I'm not going to lie, by Mass Effect 3, it has incredible third-person shooter gameplay mechanics. Like It's so much fun just to play the shooter mechanics of it. But I think what kind of happened as well is they stripped away a lot of the depth in the role-playing game side of it. Yeah. And it, it, it's sort of making those concessions like, okay, well, you know, this is going to sell better if it's just a shooter, if there's not a whole lot of other, you know, stuff behind the scenes that people have to worry about. You know, we don't want to confuse them with being able to explore a space. Let's like put them on a planet. They go through this linear maze, shoot some bad guys, and then they get to the end. 
And that that was the disappointing part for me in seeing that shift. And yeah, yeah definitely. I've I've felt strongly that it was because of EA's influence that um that was sort of why Mass Effect 2 and 3 changed in that way and was sort of you know the the framework of it was changed. But I, I purely speculation. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I have no Right. Actual... And that's not to say that like Mass Effect 2 and 3 are bad games. No, they're no, still they're, some of my yeah, favorite games. Great. Um, it's just interesting to see how things change. And and again, I think with a series like Mass Effect, because of even how big the first game got and how much growth it was experiencing, some of these changes would have happened anyway, regardless of whether or not EA had stepped in the picture, in my opinion. You know, it's what happens when things start to grow. There's more at stake. There's more at play. There's more incentives. There's more people involved. There's more factors pulling at at what makes the game the game and how it actually gets produced and published. So like you don't really maybe you don't you never get the same purity of of creative drive and creative potential in when you have something, when you have a franchise that grows over time like that, you know, it it is always going to change over time. Yeah. That's true. It's because especially shoot, I don't remember when Mass Effect 3 was released, but um it it's the kind of thing where if it was if all three games were developed at the same time and it wasn't one, two, three, if it was just like Mass Effect and all three games were like, you know, put into one, then it might have been different. But you're right. Like they're developing a new game each time, basing it on the same story. And okay, Mass Effect 3 was released in 2012. So that's five or six years of time that mm-hmm. was covered between Mass Effect 1 and Mass Effect 3. So it, you know, yeah, it's it's hard to say that stuff wouldn't have changed anyway you know and you can speculate until the world ends <laughs> but you know i don't know it it's just it's it's an unfortunate position that i feel sometimes game developers sort of get stuck into where you do do we strip away content for the simplicity and for the fact that it might sell better or do we you know maybe make things a little more complicated and i think that's why indie developers can get away with that is because they 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 can take those risks. They have more freedom to kind of find the balance that works for their game. Because right. it's not like, you know, there's a right way to do that balance in a wrong way. It's more that I think for each game and the goals of each game and the intended audience of each game that it's just different. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, like as we're talking about Mass Effect and some of these older games, um, maybe we can move into our nostalgia mm-hmm. trip section. Nostalgia um, tripping. No kidding. <laughs> I'm straight tripping. <laughs> yeah. So nostalgia trip, it's not really a segment. It's just a way for us to talk about games because I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 I get, I get the nostalgia bug hardcore. Like, Oh, definitely. Me too. Thinking, thinking about games like uh, legend of Zelda Ocarina of time for me, Pokemon crystal version or even blue version, just games that I've played in my childhood. Or original Smash up. Brothers. Oh yeah, original Smash Brothers. Like what the heck even? <laughs> but <laughs> they still, there's something about that. However, maybe unpolished it was. Going back and playing it now, it's just like the feels that come with it, and that nostalgia oh, yeah. power is too strong. Um, for me, right now, my nostalgia trip is definitely uh, Tales of Symphonia. It's a JRPG mm. game originally released on the GameCube back in uh, some date and time. I'll look that up here <laughs> real quick. But, you know, GameCube era. Uh, the reason this has popped back up for me is because it they ported it, I believe it was, uh, August 29, 
2003 is when Tales of Symphonia was released. Hmm. Um, I don't know how recently, but it was it, it's on Steam now, and just a week. I have to or, check that out. Yeah, yeah, just like a week or so ago, I think it was uh, on sale for like seven dollars, and I was like, yeah, I'm buying it. Why? I don't know. I still have I have my Tales of Symphonia sitting <laughs> next to my GameCube right now. Like I could play it there, but it's something about like the HD whatever. I I haven't even like downloaded it yet. I was just like I I need to have this. The nostalgia is too strong. Um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, so Tales of Symphonia is just this like sixty hour JRPG game. You know, as as it goes, that I don't I don't even know how to describe it. The story is so roller coastery, but what makes <laughs> the game so fun is the characters that are there. And yeah, definitely. You know, like I, I haven't played many of the quote unquote Tales series games. Um, I also never played Tales of Symphonia two because I I was scared. I was scared it was going to ruin the for the original experience yeah. for me. Um, but it it just the characters were so fun. The interaction between the characters was so well written. There was voiced dialogue, and then there's unvoiced dialogue, and then there's cutscenes that can happen depending on things you've done in the game, or places you've been to, or places you're currently at. Yeah, you're those little like, text interludes um, that you can unlock. I think yeah. that really made made that level of immersion for me. You know, seeing the characters just talk about random stuff, the food that they were eating. You know, <laughs> it it definitely added a level of of immersion to the game and like of depth to the characters especially because they would just randomly happen as you like wandered around the map sometimes. Yeah, some of them were random based on who was in your party or who wasn't. Uh, some of them were location-based, like uh, visiting uh, uh, like on the main map. If you're outside of some village, you know, a conversation might trigger there. But it, it's, it's great, and it was implemented in such a great way because a little notification comes up in the corner of the screen, and you can push the Z button to start you know, the cutscene and it's just picture boxes of their faces and then text of them speaking. But it's not just like text. The little picture boxes move, they bump into each other, you know, like they're animated, their faces change in good JRPG style. So it it adds a little bit more to it there. But the great thing about it was is like if you didn't care, it didn't interrupt the game for you. You know, you weren't forced into these cutscenes where like, okay, now I've got to listen to these characters talk for another five minutes. You know, Metal you Gear can... Solid, <laughs> two-hour final cutscene. <laughs> right. It just, it, it, it allows you, if you're interested and if you want to, to get more depth and more background on the characters and how they interact with each other. Like, one of the cutscenes I remember was of the main character, Lloyd, and the dog. And it's literally Lloyd basically talking to himself and the dog's dog in quotation marks, because <laughs> it wasn't a dog, or maybe it was in this, whatever. Uh, and the it's dog just whines. JRPG animal. Yeah, with the ear things. But the dog whines, <laughs> and that's all the dog's text, is whining. And, and Lloyd is talking at the dog. It's just, I don't know, little things like that that really make the game mm-hmm. cool. It's um, the little things. It's those little touches. Yeah, definitely. Uh, what I know, because uh, you've played Tales of Symphonia as well, uh, mostly did you with ever, you yeah yeah did you ever beat it or did that did i end up beating it on my own um no i don't think so i don't think i played much of the second disc i think i really only played it, this game on the gamecube was on two discs which is <laughs> interesting um but yeah the uh i don't think i ever played much of the second disc i only played the first disc okay yeah the the, the game definitely you know throws some punches at you and takes you through the ringer in a great way like it's it's definitely me remembering the story 
it's it's a it's like you're watching a movie but you're getting to play it there's good drama there's bad drama and you care about it because you care about the characters like honestly you know there's there's the whole hey the world's in peril aspect of course because it's a video game but <laughs> you you care about it not necessarily because you're saving the world but because you're getting to go on this journey and this adventure with these characters and for me like that was the biggest incentive to do like side quests and things was because I got to learn more about them and yeah definitely they were just yeah they were so fun to play as and go along with that adventure it's interesting you know just thinking about nostalgia trips in general that you know a lot of the newer more story focused games that come out these days it's harder for me to get into them and I think you know some of that is that the market is kind of saturated with lots of games but I think you know there really just is kind of something to the nostalgia of one of the first games that really gave you that sense of of wonder in the story that that you could interact with that you are a part of that that you could shape with your decisions um and definitely a game that really stood out to me that you know had had that impact where you could shape it with your decisions was uh knights of the old republic which is a uh, another bioware game uh star wars knights of the old republic um and it's again it's an rpg game third person um but it was definitely one of the earlier games that had a really fleshed out you know good and evil like light and dark side of the forest system um but it really changed the storyline especially as you got later on to the game and again i don't want to spoil this although it's super old but you know it changed the entire composition of your party it changed who the bosses were it changed who your allies and enemies were in the story like as, especially as you get later into the story it and those elements like really i think were one of the first exciting things that people started to see about you know kind of the modern era of gaming and and the changes that were happening you know throughout the mid 2000s and into like 2010 right people were seeing a lot of these more interactive dynamic ele- elements in games and, and and you know maybe that's that's what part of what played into games even like no man's sky on the other end of the spectrum like we're talking about earlier you know feeding into that hype it's just it's kind of interesting to me how how progress in some ways has been made but also hasn't been made because i'm still like identifying these older games as kind of the primary examples uh, of these themes and these features that i really enjoy yeah well and so knights of the old republic an amazing game like i it it stands the test of time as incredible story as incredible just characters and yeah everything and it was really i agree one of those first games at least that i'm aware of that had that whole good and evil concept and like decision influencing thing that mm-hmm. really like it it impacted how the story went and i mean there there were definitely some earlier jrpgs that did that as well but not like western gaming made mm-hmm. and so knights of the old republic was made by bioware who also made mass effect and so it's interesting also kind of seeing how they started with that sort of like good, evil, light, dark, uh, paragon, renegade thing in as that went into Mass Effect. But, yeah. It's know, interesting that it, it sort of, it got s- like slimmed down in some ways, I think, because um, the abilities were so different. Like your entire ability set changed in, in some ways in Knights of the Old Republic, depending on which side of the force you were on. And some of that was just the game system that they were using. Um, yeah. But it's, yeah, it's again, it's interesting to see that evolution over time. And I wonder how much exactly that lends to, I guess, the frontier of gaming. You know, mm-hmm. everything was new back then. Like, okay, not everything, but like, there there was a there was a lot less territory that had been treaded. 
So like you're saying, there's a lot of saturation with like story rich, well, maybe not saturation with story rich games, but saturation with just games on the market. Like, yeah. I feel like anyone who has a Steam account and has had it for more than a year has a lot of games they've bought that are on sale and are just kind of sitting there that haven't mm-hmm. been played. I have at least 50 that I have that I haven't played yet because I was like, oh, I've, I've wanted to play this and I just haven't gotten around to it for whatever reason because there's so many games out there. And I think that sort of influences the attention span. Like, yeah, for one, you know, when we were younger and there was not like the whole working thing and all of this other life stuff that had to be done. <laughs> it was it a lot was easier. easier to- yeah, it was a lot easier to sit down and kind of get engrossed in a game. Um, I think it also kind of carried with it a little bit of that like childlike wonder, even in like high school and middle school years where it was just like, this is so cool that I, you know, am experiencing this story, this other world. You know, it's like reading a good book, except mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're there, you're seeing it, you're, cre- you're like creating the story essentially by playing the game. And so I think that that lends a lot to the nostalgia of these older games, but that now that, you know, there's maybe less time in the day to sit down and really get engrossed in a story game we're drawn more towards either quick competitive games or games that don't take a whole lot to get into mobile gaming, you know, not to go down that road, but things that are just quicker to pick up, play a little bit and put down because Mm -hmm. we don't have as much time to dedicate to it. And we've seen a lot, you know, there isn't, I don't know that there's going to be any brand huge new developments in gameplay or game design that come out aside from like VR, but that's Mm -hmm. kind of a bit different because it it's been around like tales of symphonia was you know 2003 i don't when was i'll look up when kotor was released but like i think that that it's been done you know can we get to the point where there's there's things that reignite that childhood spark and maybe that's why nostalgia is so important like to go back and relive what we had then like i pokemon crystal version for me was my first my personal first Pokemon game, and I know I played that for well over three hundred hours across like two character saves, and <laughs> it saddened me when I went to turn it on and like my save was gone and the battery was dead, and I was just like, "No, oh. yeah. Been, yeah, we've gotten to that point." But I don't know. Yeah, I mean, people bag on nostalgia, but I think there's a lot of value there. Definitely, yeah. um, it, and I think we're kind of in an amazing era for gaming nowadays. You know. We, I think some of what we're saying now sounds kind of depressing. Oh, like we, you know, it's harder to get into new games. The market's so saturated. But in some ways, we're in an amazing era for gaming. You know, the amount of older games that are available to to play in remastered or like HD versions on Steam, or through different collections on any number of consoles. You know, just there's never been a point in history, in the history of gaming, where there were more games available to play than now. That's really true. And that I think that's something point. that we also have to keep in mind and appreciate because, you know, we can go back and like we were saying and play Tales of Symphonia and play Knights of the Old Republic. <laughs> We've been talking about setting up Battlefront 2 and going and playing that online if we can get oh, it working. Yeah. Like all these things. I, I just think that's what is so amazing and wondrous about technology and where gaming is at now is that we have all these older games still and now we have the new stuff. And I think that's really as far as like what needs to happen differently in the gaming industry that's what they need to acknowledge and be aware of is that you already have this massive library of games that exist and if your game isn't really adding something 
to that isn't really adding to to what types of experiences and what kinds of experiences have, then really it's just a rehash. And there's going to be something else that maybe did it better or maybe did it in a way that's going to be less, oh, sorry, more appealing or less expensive. <laughs> yeah. And I, so uh, Knights of the Old Republic was released in 2003 as well. So it wow, kind yeah. of fits into that era, I guess. But um, I think that you're totally right. And I think that's a really good way to look at it that, you know, it, it's kind of. <laughs> it can be easy for quote unquote gaming veterans to feel kind of jaded, like, oh, there's all this garbage gaming content that's coming out now, blah, blah, blah. And like, oh, nostalgia, indie game for life things. But like, I think that if there's something about a game that makes it fun and kind of draws you in, like, you know, whether it's the gameplay and the decision-making aspects like was in Knights of the Old Republic or the characters and their interactions like in Tales of Symphonia, it it's those things that might not even necessarily be expected to draw you into a game that can and do mm -hmm. like it's less nostalgia, but just kind of going off of that, uh, the Tomb Raider reboot, the first one, it, it felt like I was watching a movie. Okay. Yeah. Everyone complained about all the QTEs or the, the quick time events where you have to push a button, you know, to not die or do a thing. So you don't just like immediately die in the middle of a cutscene. But I kind of liked that. And I, I, I'm not like a proponent for quick time events. I, I think that they kind of are detracting in some regards, but it, it, it actually worked for that game. Yeah, it, it did. And I was surprised and I, I was pleasantly surprised and it really kept me going through the whole game. And I felt like I was like watching a movie that I also got to play. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think that sometimes things can surprise you about games and it just has to have that aspect that kind of pulls you in whether it's a huge triple a game or a small indie game yeah and i think you also have to think about just how the audience for games have changed over the history of gaming you know 20 years ago gaming was much more of a niche hobby the gaming audience was was much smaller right and so now you have so many different kinds of people who play games and get something different out of games and so it just makes sense at the end of the day that like there's going to be a higher percentage of games that come out that maybe you have no interest in interest in or like when you play it they just you think that they suck or like you don't care about them at all right but that just yeah. means that they were they're made for somebody else they weren't made for you and that's okay and <laughs> and as the audience gets larger and and really blossoms, right? Or like the, the gaming industry blossoms into like all these different types of games. And I think we're just going to see it proliferate more and more and more as we go into the future. As that happens, that yes, there are going to be more games that each individual person doesn't like, but there are also going to be way more games that they do like. Yeah, and it, and it allows for a lot more options too. And mm -hmm. I think that I think that that's that's also a really good point. And that's a that's a nice positive way of looking at it. And you saying that. Uh, describing how, you know, okay, well, maybe that game just that it isn't for you. There's another game out there that's going to fit for you and draw you in in that way, and it might not be one you expect, or the game that you were hoping would draw you in might not. And I, you know, we kind of it's unintentionally discussing No Man's Sky bashed on it a little bit, but like, there's plenty of people out there that enjoy the game and like playing it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's great. It uh, wasn't what we were expecting, and it right. wasn't what parts of the community were expecting, but there's probably lots of people out there who love what it is. Yeah, exactly. And I think that some of going along with like the development of games, if, if that is given a bit more intention, like, you know, so if they're making tales of symphonia three, for example, like character interaction is really important and the characters writing 
and dialogue is really important. So, you know, focusing on that aspect of it to draw people in while not like neglecting the other aspects of it. And I think that, you know, trying to make the strong points of your game stronger, but also like not neglecting the other parts, which I feel might have happened with No Man's Sky a little bit. But at the same time, not trying to make a game that's going to appeal to everyone, I think is a really good point too, because... Mm -hmm. Knowing your audience. Yeah, knowing your audience. That's really really a good point, because you can't make something that'll appeal to everyone. If you do, you're going to get kind of bland, washed out content and gameplay that's probably going to be less interesting for everyone involved. So I don't know. It's so... There's so many facets to it. It's really... It's great, Mm -hmm. but also just terrifying at the same time. I would say that the games that have been the most successful at kind of appealing to everyone have been games where, you know, they're kind of constructed in layers that you can kind of enter the game at one level of depth and it holds up, but then you can like, the game sort of like organically adds more difficulty to itself. Um, Like like side quests and things. Yeah. Um, Actually a game that sort of I always hear as an example of this is Cave Story. Yeah. Um, and that's because of like the different bosses and endings that are available depending on like which routes you take or the difficulty of the routes that you take, right? Um, and so it definitely offers that sort of like organic player growth element. And like platforming games in general are really good for that, right? Because it's your player skill that's improving as you advance through challenges. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's cool just in general, for sure. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's good that we have games to go back to with nostalgia, but it's also good that we have probably way too many games to look forward to. <laughs> yeah, and not enough time. probably won't play. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's I guess that's kind of a sad fact of things as well. But, I mean, you know what? We might not get to, but someone else is going to, and, and they're going to enjoy it, so... All right, shall we move into our our fun little game here? Our, our fun little game here. So, okay, <laughs> we don't have any cool, like, musical intro for this or any, what, mi- this, this is called mystery sound, I think we've decided. Um, and uh, basically, so we've, we've picked out three either sound effects or, like, uh, music clips from games that we know the other person's played, and uh, we, have to, we have to try and guess what they're from and maybe we'll give hints maybe we'll be stubborn you know i don't know there's not really a whole lot of rules it's just we'll create rules as we go along we'll make <laughs> as up. we as we go along and as all the you best know, games are developed that way right, right. yeah <laughs> make exactly. up the rules as you go along yeah that's how that works right <laughs> exactly okay so uh let's go ahead and you're exactly <laughs> <laughs> um so what do we want we want your your mystery clip one Sure. Sound. I'm Let's gonna do play. it. Okay. I don't so know how loud this is going to be. Yeah. So I'm. I'm going to try and guess. Guess. I'm going to try and guess. Quacticals mystery clip zero one. Uh, we'll see how loud how loud this ends up being. But okay. Here it goes.
So uh, thanks for giving me an easy one. <laughs> 100%. That's from Kirby and the Crystal Shards. Um, ding, 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 ding. I'm trying to place it. And I, for some reason, I think it's the introduction. Like if you don't push start on the title screen. Yeah, it's the intro cutscene um, okay. where the fairy, I forget her name, is like riding around on the crystal and the, like the eye is like shooting at her. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of nostalgia. Oh man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's oh. definitely what I was thinking about when I came up with that clip. So strong, the nostalgia. Yeah. Kirby and the Crystal Shards is, it's, oh, it's N64. Great. Yeah. Good stuff. Oh man! Now, now, now! I want to go and play that. See, this is this is the downside to the nostalgia thing. Is that yeah. Like, then you have like ten million games that you want to play, and you're like, oh, I want to play all of them. Help! I can't. I can't deal with this. Yeah. Not only the new games. Now I'm like, oh, great! Now I've got all these old games that I also want to play. Ah, what do I do? <laughs> Help. Uh, okay. So I've got uh, my first mystery sound clip for you. Uh, I, I I have sound effects. So okay. uh, this is this is not so much a sound effect uh, as it is a clip from a game, but uh, here, here, here we go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. Um, so uh, my brain is either thinking GTA 4 or Just Cause 2, but I can't. I think it's Just Cause 2. I'm going to go with Just Cause 2. Well, it, it it that is actually from GTA Four. Damn it! <laughs> but no, like totally, you're right. Uh, Just Cause Two, it would be kind of the same. That was a just the Nico, scream. <laughs> that was Nico, my cousin, being launched from the windshield of a car. <laughs> <laughs> so kind of similar to what would have happened in Just Cause Two. Kind of similar, except you would have fallen off the wing of an airplane <laughs> as it crashed into the ground, and fifteen cars exploded from C Four, and a water tower fell over. At the same time. So we're starting off with softballs, but I think I should get an honorable mention for that one. <laughs> no, yeah. I, I, that, it, it was a little bit, you know, it, I, either one. I, yeah. I, I, think you, I think you did One of mine is difficult in a similar way, so. <clears throat> <laughs> okay, well, I think all of mine are difficult because it's not, uh, they're all just like sound effects. But any, okay, so I'll <laughs> move on to mystery clip number two from The Quacktical. I'll go ahead and play this. those nice little fade outs i added at the end oh yeah you actually edited yours <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh whoops i i, I didn't <laughs> um because i'm better Holla. Oh, clearly clearly shoot let's i i kind of recognize it but at the same time like this is the hard one this is the hard one can yeah. can what what system gba game boy Advance. gba what yep Oh, well then there goes there I don't goes know if we thoughts. actually played it on that system though. We might have huh. played it on an emulator. I'm 
I'm drawing. I'm drawing a blank. Throw 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 me a bone mm. or two. A um, soft soft bone. It actually has very similar combat to the Civilization games. Is that Advance Wars? Yes. No way. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Maybe that well, was too much of a hint, but I also <laughs> thought it was sort of obscure. So. <laughs> no, that which which Advance Wars was that clip from? Um, I'm not sure, but it was Andy's theme. I th- just Advance Wars GBA. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. Wow. Dang. Yeah, that's been a long time since I played that. That was a pretty fun game. Yeah. We did. We did. Yeah, because we I, played the hot seat multiplayer um, on an y- emulator. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. That That is pretty cool. It's been a while, actually, <laughs> since there's been an Advance War game, hasn't there? Yeah, I actually haven't really followed it, but... I, the last one I remember was for the the DS. I don't know that there's been a 3DS one. They kind of like made it a bit more, a bit less cartoony and a bit more like nitty gritty. I don't remember what the tagline was of it, but I'd be interested yeah. to try it out though. Yeah, nice. <laughs> that was a good one. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, I've definitely gone with the nostalgia theme for these clips here. Cool. Mine, mine are sort of all over the case, all over the place, <laughs> all over the case, all over the case, all over the mental case. Okay, so this this next one might be kind of difficult too. I don't know. So there's two. We've got uh, two sound bites. Like just little sound effect clips that I'm gonna play. I'll play you uh, the first one, and then I'll play the second one. And if you need me to replay them, I can. They're just one second long. So. Alrighty. What? <laughs> um, excuse me. <laughs> you want, mate? <laughs> can you play them again, me? please? Yes. <laughs> Oh my gosh, what? Um, my brain's actually thinking like Mario Party? Nah, uh, it's, it's a, it's a, a PC game. Oh my gosh. Oh man, I need more hints, man. This is bad. <laughs> so it's a, it's a PC game. It's one of your favorite genres of games. Play it again? That makes me think roguelike. <laughs> the is game itself is that from Binding of Isaac? No, the game itself is pretty silly. Um, there's there's vending machines. Oh man, what? <laughs> I have no idea. The game can get so hard that it's really dreadful. <laughs> <laughs> Dread full. Deadly rooms of death? No. You, you you what what's something that you uh is under a castle? Or oh, like the Dungeons deep- of Dreadmore. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> wow, you really had to spoon feed me that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was pretty obscure, but I was like I wanted to it's the Diggles. Oh, the friggin' Diggles. Oh, but it was a roguelike. Yeah. <laughs> So oh man! <laughs> the the first sound effect is the Diggles, uh, like a group when you like encounter them in a room, hmm. um, and then the second one was them attacking or casting a spell. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Well, I, I get an epic fail for that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it was pretty. Like I said, the sound effects are kind of hard, but I mean, yeah, it, it was the fun music listening. Clips, I think you you get a little bit more just like ambient understanding of what was going on and context. <clears throat> But yeah. it's 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 fun to listen to you struggle. <laughs> <laughs> I hate you. Well, my next my last one is a sound effect. So okay, cool. So it's this is probably going to be easy, but maybe difficult. I don't know. 
probably easy, but maybe difficult. All right, so I'll go in with no expectations, and I won't be overhyped. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, it's a pistol. Hold on, I got. I need to listen to this again. It's a pistol from a Halo game. But which Halo game? But which Halo, I'm not sure. I just love that clip because you have the pistol and then you have like the slight like elite grunt right at the end. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it's not Halo 3 because it shoots, it shoots too fast. This is the hard part, obviously. <laughs> it, it, okay, I'm going to play it again. I'm thinking Halo 1. It could be Reach, but I'll, I'll, I'll put my money down on Halo 1 pistol. And you would be correct. Oh. <laughs> wow. Nice. So does that mean you're three for three? Uh, no, I, I didn't really get the Advance Wars one. Okay. I, that, was, that was a bit. That Past was a, bit a certain number of hints. Our unofficial rule is if you, you ask for too many hints, then you suck. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what happens. That's the result is that you suck. I think, I think that's valid. <laughs> I think that's All fair. Right. So I got uh, one more. Yeah, one more for you. Here, here goes. I, I, yeah, we'll just, I'll just hit play. <laughs> Fitting for Halloween. Oh my gosh. Um, wow. Again, I really fail at this and I have no idea. <laughs> play it again? Yeah. Um, I don't know. What system? Can you give me an idea? GameCube. GameCube. Huh. It almost sounds like a Ganondorf laugh. Like, <laughs> but kind of. I don't think so. Hmm. Uh, it's also a nostalgia trip for us. <laughs> hmm. I I honestly want to say like some sort of uh, I either want to say like it sounds like Ganondorf to me I don't know why um, I, so I, I guess I would say Melee Smash Bros Melee you are correct wow you, was it Ganondorf <laughs> no it's Master Hand oh <laughs> well <laughs> success through failure success I mean hey you know there you go yeah it's um I was trying to find actually the clip when you defeat him but that was just like a, a really demented like screaming noise <laughs> so I, w I went for the evil laugh instead i felt that that was a little bit less uh t terrifying but well, i was like hey cred has been completely removed for not knowing what ganondorf sounds like well i think that that's i think that's fair like it could it could be it was just there's a lot of reverb on it but again i'll i'll, I'll throw you some sound or some music clips next time to yeah to even things out a little bit, but you know, hey, I, yeah, those sound actually, clips are a little bit more difficult, I think. Yeah, but they're they're fun when they're like the 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 Diggle one was fun. That was fun listening <laughs> yeah. to you struggle on that one. Uh, I like I like that. That actually that that was a lot more. F I mean, not that I was anticipating it wouldn't be fun, but like, I don't know. That was it was more fun than I was expecting. I wasn't overhyped for the mystery sound segment. <laughs> too hype. Too hype. Too handle. To, <laughs> can't handle this hype train. 
I mean, I can't handle a whole train by myself anyway. It takes at least like, you know, 10 or 15 people to lift that up. You know, those things are pretty heavy. (laughs) (laughs) The real question then is why are you lifting trains? Why can't I hold all these trains? It's a good question. I like a good question. A relevant question? Not at all. A good question? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, it sounds like we're wrapping it up here. Hi, yeah, I would say so. Um, But that was fun. Like, Uh, look at us. Thank you for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. We've got this first episode, like, down. Episode! For for our our tune into gaming. Episode one. Like, podcasting. This is is fun. I've enjoyed it. I'm now, now that we're at the end, I'm significantly less nervous than I started out being. I don't yeah. know about you. <laughs> Something like that. But yeah, Something make sure like to that. check out our Twitter at uh, Tune Into Gaming. Yeah, and uh, as well, you know, if you listen to this and you want to comment at us and don't want to use Twitter, uh, you can email us at tuneintogaming at gmail.com. Uh, whether it's like a question or a comment or you think that we both suck at identifying sounds or actually, but that's if, definitely you really, true. if you really want to do something cool, um, send in, send in a, a sound or a music clip, and see if uh, I don't know one of us can grab it out of the email or from Twitter and give it to the other one or something. I don't know. <laughs> we can we can maybe figure that out. That might be kind of cool to get some you know listener submitted stuff. Or we can make it into like a community guess where we like guess on the episode and then the community tells us for the next episode. Yeah, that'd be kind of cool. So something like that. I don't know. Email. Tweeter, tweeter us, tweeter all us. that good stuff. Yeah, so at at tune into gaming or tune into gaming at gmail dot com. Either either one of those are good. I hope you've enjoyed listening. Yeah. I'm Quactical, and I'm North Kozar. And uh, I I don't have a mic to drop because I'm wearing a headset. But tune out, tune it. Oh, that's that yeah. that's that's our closing. Yeah, we just made our closing. Tune out. Yeah. Yeah.